Thanks for joining the show, everybody. Just starting up the Head Talks tour again. Select cities sporadically throughout the year whenever I can get the most amazing psychedelic communicator I have ever met, Sophia Rockland, uh, to join me. And uh, got her on coming through Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, Asheville, where we're also doing stand-up science, Charlotte, Athens, Atlanta, Chattanooga, Nashville, where we're also doing a special Valentine's Day edition of Stand Up Science, talking mating behavior, plant reproduction, plants getting sexy, uh, a lot of fun, Fort Smith, Fayetteville, and then um, we'll be doing Stand Up Science in Oklahoma City, then Austin, we'll be doing both head talks and Stand Up Science, all the Austin shows sold out crazy fast so we're going back through in a hurry um asheville stand-up science is already almost sold out we started advertising that ahead of head talks this head talks um a psychedelic uh crowd tends to buy uh, a little more uh, a little less in advance but guys get your hands on these tickets early because Got some good news. Shows have been selling out quite a bit lately. And, um, you know, it always sucks having to turn away people and people are excited and they travel a distance and everything. And, um, or, or they, they wait till the day of or two days before and then tickets are sold out. So please check it out ahead of time. And a great way to keep up with that is to go to my email list on shanemoss.com. Enter your email in zip code, I promise you, I never, ever, ever send emails out other than maybe like once a year or something. If I have like a documentary out or something like that, I only have the reason why I have the zip code on there is so I don't need to bug you. I don't need to fill your inbox. You will only get an email from me when I'm in your area. That's it. I am not a spammer. So check that out. That's the best way to keep up with what I'm doing. Pop on over to shanemoss.com and you can check out all the things that I have going on. And if you are new to the show and you haven't checked out my documentary, Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics on Amazon Prime, it's free. Check it out. It's a great primer for the Head Talks tour. I've been getting a ton of incredible feedback for it lately. You know, it came out um, nine months ago now, and I think it's just going to be one of those things that just continues to build momentum. It seems like more and more people are finding out about it and spreading the word, and it's thrilling. I just got recognized. I was in, in Miami, South Beach. I got recognized. On, I was eating outside, and uh, and someone came up and, and stopped me, had just seen the documentary on their plane ride just hours before and happened to be walking by and recognized me. Super cool. Guys, if you want to help that out, help me out, help the mission. Easy, cheap way to do that is to go on, review the documentary, uh, give it a five star and and uh, write a nice review. Same thing with this podcast. Here we are. I put a whole lot of work into all of all of this and uh, and uh, it, it, yeah, I've, I've spent spent more 
time and money on both this and the documentary than uh, than I've gotten back and probably will ever get back. And I do this because, uh, well, one, it, it, it certainly benefits me. It helps um, build a bigger fan base and not just a bigger fan base, but a better fan base, a fan base of people like you guys that I like, that are interested in interesting things uh, like this, like the topics we talk about on the program. But, um, but, uh, yeah, I, but I'm, I'm, uh, definitely not getting rich off the, and by not getting rich, I mean not breaking even <laughs> off of, uh, off of this or the documentary. And so, uh, if you want to help that out, you know, I'm just an independent producer making my own things, got a, a lot of expenses. So, uh, help me out by, by reviewing on there. And you can also go to Patreon dot com if you want to support super cool and uh with that i hope you enjoy today's episode are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast fun episode today. Again, I have a special guest co-host, anthropologist Sophia Rocklin is joining me. Hello, hello. And I also have paleophysiologist at Midwestern University, John Vanden Brooks is joining me today. Oh, good to be with you today. What in the heck is a paleophysiologist? That's a really good question. So I study the physiology of extinct organisms, which seems like something you might not be able to do since they're not around anymore. So really what it entails is using modern analogs of animals to look at their physiology to try to infer changes that we've seen over the last 500, 600 million years. So we use that modern data, and then we look at what's been going on in the fossil record to see if we can answer big questions about evolutionary biology. Mm, throw me a big question. Yeah, so I, we study a couple different things that I've been focusing on. One of them is I'm really interested in how the atmosphere has changed over the last 500 million years. So if we think about today, carbon dioxide levels are going up, oxygen levels are going down. Uh, that's happened over geologic time too. So today's oxygen levels are about 21% of the atmosphere. Um, so it's the second largest component after nitrogen, but that hasn't been constant. So over the last 500 million years, oxygen's gone up to about 31%, so about 50% greater than today, and then all the way down to 12%, which is about half what it is today. So you could imagine having half the amount of oxygen that you had in the past uh, compared to today would have big impacts on how animals and insects are able to live. Mm. And, and what kind of species can even evolve in the first place, I would imagine? Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of times where oxygen drops really rapidly. So you can imagine as oxygen goes down really quickly, that's going to limit the diversity of the organisms that survive at that time. A really classic example is um, about 250 million years ago, oxygen goes from 30% all the way down to about 14 or 15% really quickly, geologically. So this is still over millions of years, but quickly for, for a paleophysiologist. And at that time is when dinosaurs first evolve. So right then, that's when you first get dinosaurs. When and was that again? That was about 250 million years ago. So yeah, it's at the, what's called the Permian-Trassic boundary. So as we go from the Permian, that's kind of the, a big transition from all the things that lived before then so then we get into the Triassic when we start the age of dinosaurs. So Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, where we have all the dinosaurs that you're probably familiar with from your childhood, like T-Rex and Triceratops. So they're all evolving over these, you know, maybe 150 million year time span. 
So at this time, oxygen's really low and we first get dinosaurs evolving at this time. And as you may know, um, the modern ancestor of, um, modern descendants, sorry, of dinosaurs are birds. And if we think about birds, birds have some of the most efficient respiratory systems of any known animal. That's how they're able to fly so efficiently. They can fly up above Everest, like the bar-headed goose, all these sorts of things. Hmm. What, what makes it yeah, so efficient? Yeah, exactly. So that's the question, right? So this is what a paleophysiologist does. They look at what is the physiology of a modern organism, and can we infer something from what happened in the past? So if we look at modern birds, they have um, this efficient system of air sacs that allows air to go, as they breathe it in, it goes in in one breath, and then it goes across the lungs in a second breath and out. So they don't just breathe, a, they, the air doesn't go in and out like in a mammal one time. It actually goes in in one breath, and then it comes out in the second breath. And what that allows for is that oxygen is always moving across their um, respiratory surfaces. They're all get, able to get more oxygen per amount of air they're taking in compared to a mammal. Okay, so this is a really efficient system. Then go really high uh, in the air. Like I said, they go above Mount Everest where a mammal or humans clearly would not be able to survive. So where does this efficient respiratory come from, system come from? Well, if you live in a time where oxygen is half what it is today, then the selective pressure is for really efficient respiratory systems. So if we look back in dinosaurs, this respiratory system that birds have today have nothing to do with flight they have to do with being able to survive when there's not very much oxygen, even when you're at ground level. So not when you're way up in the mountains or up flying in the air, but even at sea level, oxygen was half what it is today. And so then when birds evolve 100 million years later, they already have this efficient respiratory system, which is what allows them to evolve the ability to fly later on. And so those are some of the things that if we see how changes in oxygen affected evolution, it may not even be in the organism that we're interested in. It may have been way back in their, in their ancestors in the past when when the atmosphere, oxygen levels, whatever, were changing at that time. So they didn't fly when there was a low oxygen? Yeah, so dinosaurs, so don't, like, if we think about what you think of a classic as a dinosaur, like not calling birds dinosaurs. Because I'm thinking, like, pterodactyls and stuff. Those yeah, are... so ter so pterodactyls are sort of, they're not dinosaurs to begin with, but that's not, maybe neither here nor there. But uh, <laughs> Show us how little yeah, I, yeah, I know nothing about dinosaurs. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, dinosaurs. Did you know that? I didn't know Yeah, that, dinosaurs no. weren't, uh, uh, weren't flying at that time when they first evolved. So in the mm. early Triassic, there are no winged dinosaurs at that time. There's no feathers. None of these things that are going to happen later on. So really, the respiratory system they have is just to survive because there's not very much oxygen. It doesn't have anything to do with wanting to fly. It's just think about right now, if I gave you half the amount of oxygen that you have, would you be able to breathe very well? Uh, of course not. Of no. course not, right? And so the animals that can breathe very well because they have more efficient respiratory systems are the ones that survive. And then that respiratory system gets passed on after generation right. after generation. And now here come the ancestors of birds. And things start to evolve like feathers. Things start to evolve like wings. And these are also not evolving for flight. These are evolving for other purposes. Like we think one of the reasons that wings might evolve is to help grasp prey. So we see animals using this wing-like motion that's a flight-like motion to try to grasp what they're trying to eat and bring it into their mouth. So it's mm. nothing to do with flight. Mm. And feathers evolving for things like trying to be warm for insulation might be one thing or to be able to help climb up trees, all these different things, right? So now they have feathers, they have the sufficient respiratory system, they have wings, and now they have all the machinery needed to fly. And that's how flight sort of evolves. So, so was it... Uh, uh, was it when oxygen really increased? Was that was that when 
um, birds started evolving. Yeah, that's right. So as oxygen goes up, now the animals that have these more efficient respiratory systems can use that additional oxygen to be able to power their flight. That's one idea, at least. I mean, I'm not, you know, all these are sort of theories or hypotheses that are out there, but these are some of the things that people have proposed. Mm-hmm. So. And historically, going back, I guess oxygen levels were changing depending on veg- what were some of the factors that were happening. Was there increased vegetation, which then after millions of years changed it out, and then the, spe- the creatures didn't have to use those sort of techniques anymore or those yeah that is a great question so how do we know what the oxygen actually were and right. why were they high and why were they low that is uh and you're absolutely you've hit on something that has to do with plants but maybe not the way you might think so um right now when you go drive your car and you turn your car on it starts to burn gasoline right and when it burns gasoline it uses up oxygen and generates co2 So we're all familiar with that idea and we're doing it all the time and we're actually doing it right now. So every time we're burning coal and we're burning gas and we're burning natural gas, all these sorts of things, we're putting CO2 in the atmosphere and we're effectively bringing oxygen levels down. Now, oxygen's not changing very much right now because CO2 is such a small component of the atmosphere. A little bit of change in CO2 is a big deal, but we're not changing oxygen very much. Okay. Now imagine you have millions of years to do this. Okay. So things die, trees die. And that organic carbon is sitting on the surface of the earth. Well, that same process you do in your car, when you start it and burn the gasoline, that happens naturally. So if I left ga- if I left organic carbon on the surface of the earth, over time, it would interact with oxygen and would basically draw that oxygen down and it would put CO2 in the atmosphere, okay? And so that's what's happening all the time. So it controls the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere over million year time scales now, tens of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, is the amount of carbon that gets left on the surface of the earth versus the amount of carbon that actually ends up getting buried, right? So normally when things die, you probably think of there's, they get buried under the surface of the earth, they might go down on the ocean shelf and sediments might cover them up, they might go into a coal swamp, they might just be buried due to other pro, you know, geologic processes all the time. So when that carbon gets buried and it basically gets taken out of the system, right? You take it away. So if there's less carbon, that effectively means more oxygen ends up in the atmosphere because it's not interacting with that carbon, right? And then conversely, if that organic carbon stays on the surface of the earth, then it gets burned up just like you do in your car all the time, right? Just very slowly, takes millions and millions of years. And that effectively brings oxygen down. So what happens when we get this big spike in oxygen, which we kind of alluded to before, right? It goes up to 31%. Well, when it goes way up, what's really happening is trees have evolved for the first time. So we didn't have woody trees before then. We had things like trees. We had ferns, things like that. Uh, This is about 330, 340 million years ago. That's about the time scale that we're talking about, Um, give or take, you know. Um, But so at that time, you get these first woody plants. And they have things in them, which we say are weather resistant, meaning that they don't break down as easily. So they have things like lignin in them. Think about the trunks of trees, right? They're hefty compared to leaves and branches and, and twigs, things that break down fairly easily. So now you have this new form of organic carbon in the woody trees, in these weather resistant trees. And so instead of breaking down, interacting with the atmosphere, this stuff is more easily buried now because it lasts longer. It doesn't break down as quickly. And so as these trees get buried, that effectively increases the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere, okay? And so then we come to the uh, Permian-Triassic extinction where it drops really quickly and everything goes extinct all at once. So when you have this big extinction event, there's all this carbon there for the atmosphere to interact with, the continental shelf is changing, Pangea is coming together, all these things basically mean that carbon stays on the surface uh, for a longer period of time and then that brings the oxygen levels 
back down. So that's what that's really has nothing to do with photosynthesis or respiration. It has to do with plants in a totally different way that you probably don't think about normally, which is that they burn you. They burn just like anything else does, just very slowly. Interesting. So that was actually it was like fuel. It was tinder for the carbon, yeah, fire or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the way I would think about it. Just very slowly, like we right, we do right. it quickly as humans, right? But other animals don't burn things, right? So that we're just relying on geology to either burn up the carbon or let it get buried. So. I'm curious when they, so when all of a sudden there's all this oxygen in the, and it's just like, man, we have oxygen to burn. Might as well start flying. There's so much oxygen around here. Start evolving these new, um, you know, fantastic um, strategies and, and abilities. Is there, did the respiratory system continue to evolve at that point or was it, or was there no longer like selection pressure um, and, and did that just kind of stay as, as it was and everything else evolved from the same basic system? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the short answer is, you know, we don't really have enough evidence to know, like the timing of these events is hard to know. And that's why we have to infer a lot from what we see today. Right. So I would say we don't really know, but I would say, of course, selection will continue. Now there won't be necessarily that selective pressure, right? So low oxygen won't necessarily be driving the respiratory system, but thinking about outcompeting other groups of animals. So if you're a more efficient flyer, then you're outcompeting other flyers. So there still is that competitive selective pressure that will push those animals to outcompete other animals. So, you know, it may not be oxygen at this time, but there are other pressures besides that. And I think that's one thing to mention here is we're going to talk about oxygen probably, but of course there are so many other factors that are evolved that are going on, you know, temperature, uh, nutrient availability, competition, all these things are going on. So oxygen is just one piece of the puzzle right. and just happens Radiation, to be what yeah, I study. Huh. I'm kind of thinking is, boy, this is, like five years ago now, but I had someone on talking about they had studied a particular gene in it's like people in the Himalayan mountains that had a that had a gene that made them like more thrifty with oxygen and they, they were able to metabolize oxygen basically better um, uh, than us because they're in higher altitudes and that there was a lot of selection pressure and I asked if there's like any downside to this and it didn't, as far as they can tell, there's no downside. And so then my question was like, well, why don't we all have this gene? And it's just because there hasn't been the pressure for, so potentially we could all have this gene. There's no reason like not to evolve it. Or communities in the Andes who have like wider rib cages, I guess that's a human equivalent of what... Yeah, I think, so that's a really interesting aspect is if we look at human populations, how do they vary and how are some populations more easily able to survive at high altitude than others? And it's the same pressure like you've alluded to, which is that there's less oxygen availability. Now, I might give a slightly different answer. I'm not sure who you're referring to, but I I would say that there's a cost to everything, right? So, So like if you invest in that gene, and you build whatever that efficient system is for you, that means you're not investing in something else because there's never unlimited resources. Yeah. And this actually- will, we, no free lunch. That's right. And so when we talk about the insects, we actually talk about one of these trade-offs that occurs between being efficient and what that you have to pay to be as efficient as you are. But that's true in humans too. And for instance, um, you know, there are different populations of high elevation. So if we think about the Ethiopian populations versus the Himalayan populations versus the Andean populations, they don't all have the same traits, actually, right? So that should point you to there has to be a cost because at least although you would argue all those high elevation populations should have 
all those traits, but they don't. Right. And that's because they've gone through different selective pressures and different solutions to the same problem, right? There's never any one solution to an evolutionary problem. Like you think about flight, there's lots of different groups that fly. You alluded to one array, pterodactyls, right? Birds, insects, bats, right? So there's different groups and they all have different solutions to this problem. None of them fly the same way. Some use different, they all use different respiratory systems. You think about bats versus birds, uh, the way that they're, um, the bone structure actually is filled out. That wing is very different. Um, we think about insects versus birds. The way they fly is very different. The number of wings is different. The flight stroke is different. So there's never one solution to a problem. And there's never just, it, nothing is free. I think that's a good answer. There's no free lunch. Like it's a trade. Everything you invest in means you didn't invest in something else. Do you ever find cases where there are like almost identical patterns of evolution and just because they're extremely similar environmental pressures, for example, or is it really like they're constantly new permutations of life just exploring form? Do you mean like, uh, or do you mean like independently arising from? Yeah, like let's say that, you know, this bird community evolved in this exact same way as another bird community in a totally different side of the world. Like they had that same... Yeah, so we call response. that convergent evolution. So yeah, I would say that happens um, regularly, uh, or, or at least not uncommonly. Um, you know, the solution may not be exactly the same, but the solution looks very similar. So yes, absolutely. So if you, if the way to think about it is, if you have a similar, well, the morphology or the way an animal looks or its physiology, there are two things that are controlling that, right? So there's the genetics, that's genetic code that that animal has. And then there's the environmental piece, which can then establish what is the range, you know, so the genes establish what is the range of morphologies or phenotypes or the way you look that are possible. And then your environment determines what exact version you actually see of that animal. And so if you ha imagine the animals have a sim similar genetic background and a similar environmental conditions, then it's maybe not unsurprising that you see similar morphs or similar forms in different places in the world. Um, so that's one way to think about it, you know, I would say so. Do you have any idea how many times flight evolved independently? Because that, that is, I, I mean, I guess intuitively I would have thought that something stumbled upon it and then everything that flies evolved from is the descendant of that, that one species. But it sounds like in, instead it's the case that there was like some lizard that figured out gliding and then some other, that, some other thing that figured out how to tackle things that then became wings later on. And uh, do you have any sense of how many different times it evolved? Yeah, I, that's a, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head. The, the, it has not each group of animals has figured out it independently, right? So the way insects fly is nothing to do with the way birds fly. It's nothing to do with the way mammals fly, bat, you know, flying mammals. So, but within those lineages, we generally think that it's evolved one time within that lineage. So flight evolved one time within insects, one time within birds, things like that. But in terms of like how many across all species, less than 10 times, I would say as well, you know, it depends on what you determine as flight. So, you know, are there are snakes that glide out of trees, you know, they go really far in their undulating motion. Do you call that flight? Uh, you know, there are the flying squirrels, right. That glide. Do we call that flight? Right. So it, depending on how you define it, I would say, you know, 10, 10 or a dozen times, maybe if we included all those sorts of things. Hmm. How much different does flight look like? between an insect and a bird because you know this is my first time uh hearing about some of this evolution of flight stuff 
I've heard little bits and pieces before, but I, I guess I never really, to me, I, I would have thought like, well, a wing is a wing is a wing. And, and there's basically the same basic principle going on, but is it drastically different the way an insect flies and a bird flies? Yeah, so, that, so the, the core concept has to be the same, which is that you have to generate enough lift to get off, just like an airplane has to generate enough lift to get you in the air. What the bird and the insect are both trying to do is generate lift, right? So they have to generate enough force to get their mass, whatever that mass is, off the ground. So one big difference, at least today, between insects and birds that you might notice are insects are all small and birds are big, right? But if you look in the past, insects were quite big, right? And that's the one thing I've studied, you know, in the past is how oxygen leads to insect gigantism. So we can't just say, oh, okay, it's because birds are bigger and insects are smaller. Therefore, they have to have different flight patterns, right? Because insects were bigger in the past. Um, so one big difference is that a lot of insects have four wings. And at least all birds that live today have two wings, right? So that, that would be one big difference behind how you fly. And the other thing is that birds use their wings in the same motion all the time. So both wings are operating together for a single flight stroke. Where in insects, they can actually use their wings independently. And so when we were developing these cyborg beetles, we were actually able to activate one wing or the other wing independently to try to get that insect to turn. And that wouldn't necessarily work in a mammal, or sorry, in a bird, um, based on the way that you could stimulate the muscles. And so it's just something to think about how there's that central pattern generator that generates flight is different in insect or bird, but the core concept, I've got to get off the ground and generate lift, is the same, right? So yes, of course, both have to have some sort of stroke that's going downwards to get them to move, but the way they do that is different, so... Can we talk about these cyborg beetles for yeah, a second? It was, you really breezed right over cyborg beetles. Wait, Hold wait, wait. There. Why are there cyborg beetles? What's yeah, why is the big question? Yeah, so um, again, I, I like the way we're dancing a little bit around the, like what we sort of thought about talking about, which is insects and oxygen. Oh, we're going to get and, there. And this, this, this is where the cyborg we, beetle we, project... We got 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah, this is where the... Cy no, I'm just, it's just funny how they're all related yeah. in the sense that um, the cyborg beetle project came about... Um, in the concept that they wanted to be able to control the flight of an, an animal instead of having to be able to build a robot from scratch that you could get to fly. So to be clear, it's not a robotic beetle. No, it's it an is, actual it's living a real beetle, beetle that's that right. you're somehow augmenting through what? Beetle mind control. Yeah, absolutely. So was it, was it, did we, was there the you're big debate? Off. Do we call it beetle mind control or do we call it cyborg beetles? There must've been a lot of infighting there. I, like, I prefer cyborg beetles personally. Okay. But you know, right. it depends. Nice and and the it. thing yeah. with, with just the mind control is the truth is, is what I just alluded to is we actually were affecting the muscles themselves, not I necessarily the, the brain, you know, so we actually implant electrodes into the muscles. Gosh, that would have looked like a real fool. Yeah, well, yeah, let me explain a little bit more maybe. So uh, there are a lot of places that would be good to be able to get um, fly, small flying robots into. So you think about um, disaster <laughs> zones or crash sites where humans can't get in. And something that walking around the gr ground is unable to like go through that terrain, right? So you th or you think about even you know like when we when they had this big um, flooding in, in Thailand, right? And there were there were the they were the trapped cave, down there, yeah. and there was no way to get anything down there. But if you had something that could fly into there that you could control, that would be able to work, right? So th so th this is kind of where these ideas came from originally is getting flying organ a flying robot somewhere um, that would be useful. But the problem is as we already alluded to is flight is actually really energetically expensive. So like even for an animal and for a robot, it was when we were first doing this, maybe 10 years ago or so, 
uh, there was no battery that was light enough that could generate enough power to actually get a robot to fly. It just, it was, it was, you know, in, in a meaningful way, a small robot that would be able to do this. And so the idea we came up with was, well, what if we took something that already flies and then controlled it flying? It, it doesn't, we don't have to solve the problem of powering it. The animal powers it already. And so what we were able to do <laughs> is take. So I'm just very delighted. And this idea was I'm, I'm, Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying like not to interject and just no, listen no, go ahead. I'm just yeah. like way too excited to hear the rest of this. I yeah, also just have to interject with saying it should be called the Frankenstein Beetle Project. Sure. Perhaps. That's not bad. I, I like mean, that. Something Frank, Frank and Beetle. Frank and Frank you need Beetle. a good headline. Yeah, we'll have to come up with something. I, I, I got a good headline for you in a little bit. But uh, one thing is the... Um, talking about the robot versus the beetle itself is that if we can implant the parts into the beetle and control the beetle flying, then we can get it to go where we need. And that was the hardest part. And so our, the initial interest that brought me in, so I'm not an engineer, obviously I'm a biologist or paleophysiologist or you know, whatever we want to geologist, whatever we want to name ourselves. Um, there were engineers who were building all these parts. So the world's smallest battery the world's smallest GPS, the world's smallest, you name it, they were engineering it. And I didn't have anything to do with that. These guys were at University of Michigan. And I mean, this, you know, you would tell them something and they would say, I just give us some time. And then they would make it smaller or more efficient. And I mean, I just, it, I was constantly amazed at the things that they could come up with, you know, that I, I knew, I know nothing about. It's way outside my field of expertise. Um, and then what we do is we would implant these parts into a beetle. And the initial idea was that could we use oxygen A to make them bigger? Or B, could we use that to somehow control their flight? Because I've already told you they need enough oxygen to fly. We alluded to that before. So if we could kind of affect that system. Now, to be honest, it didn't really going, end up going down that direction. We, we sort of abandoned the oxygen side of it. And what we did is we tried a more direct control system. So basically, we took electrodes and we implanted them into each flight muscle. And if we stimulate them at the frequency that the flight muscle normally operates at, you can actually get the flight muscle, the flight muscle to start to operate and you can change the speed at which it operates. And this is where it becomes important that insects have their wings work independently. So if I, if an insect, I shouldn't say I, people always hate when I anthropomorphize insects, like I'm a giant insect, so I'll try to avoid that. But if I'm, if I'm, a, <laughs> if I'm an insect and I'm flying. Oh it, yeah, I'm going to get so many <laughs> angry emails. To, no, no, well, I you can't know, believe like, yeah, John yeah. was anthropomorphizing yeah. <laughs> insects. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine your audience is really concerned. Oh, yeah, they are yeah, getting pretty heated right now. Uh, I, well, they, they would have been heated if we would have never brought up the cyborg. Part of me wishes like we would have just like, let's just let it go and then just be like no 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 let's back to the oxygen things yeah, yeah. and then just Keep skip over the <laughs> just sitting at home like when are they gonna ask about yeah, the cyborg yeah. beetle there's like a parallel universe where we didn't yeah, have did. this conversation yeah they're knocking down the door in that universe because they're concerned um anyway so if you can imagine if no, that's if, if you're flying and you need to turn to the right what you would do is you would make the wing on the left side of your body flat faster than the wing on your right side of the body. And then that caused you to turn left and vice versa to turn right. And then if you can get the muscles that go make the animal uh, go up or down, operate the same way, then you can actually control the animal taking off, turning left and right, etc. And so we, you know, we installed these little um, uh, controllers, little micro backpacks with again, world's smallest battery, world's smallest GPS, and then electrodes fed off them. And then we had a remote device that would send the signal to the beetle to then get it to take off and turn left and right and land. 
Did you just casually say world's smallest battery and GPS? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's not true anymore. Ten years ago, it was true. So okay. I'm certain that technology is, I mean, so just to be clear, this is a while ago. Time, yeah. I think technology's probably progressed quite a bit by now. I'm sure that there are things out there that are far outstripping whatever we were doing ten years ago. But mm-hmm. yeah, so at the time. Yeah, you can put special forces in the in the Air Force out of business with this kind of technology. Yeah, I mean, I think that there were a group that probably was interested in you know this kind of stuff, of you know, and um and so yeah, so it was, it was interesting, and you know, we got to work sort of. I mean, so you know, we could t- get them to take off and, and turn left and right. I mean, the fine control wasn't really there, and then to be honest, the project kind of you know, moved on from that point, we kind of set the groundwork. And then I think people have taken it away since then. And, you know, I, I really haven't been involved since, you know, maybe 2011 or 12. Something like that, so. I often like I start a new project. And I'm like really excited about it in the beginning. And then after a while, it's like, oh, I'm just sick of hearing about these cyborg beetles, whatever. I'll let someone else deal. Is that what happened? <laughs> yeah, you I just kind of like you got it to go up and down, right and left. OK, I get it. Let well, someone think, else figure out. I think the you jest, but I think there's something to be said to that. Right. The. the like it, sometimes the new idea is the easy part, right? right. I mean, it, yeah. maybe it doesn't seem that way, but well, it's it, the exciting part. It's the way yeah. you have like the passion and energy. That's to, right. And, and the hard work is the refinement and getting it to work. So I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to characterize myself that way, but mm-hmm. um, I, I think there's something to be said for that. Right. And so there are, there are people who are able to generate ideas and get projects off the ground and get them started. And then there are people who need to do the really hard leg work for the next 10 years to get it to really work. And so I think, you know, it just has to depend on what your interest is and, and who's available at that time and things like that. So I, I think, I, you know, even though you say in jest, I think there's some truth to maybe that idea. Uh, maybe this isn't your area, but what are the sort of ethical or moral implications of uh, manipulating animals to do our bidding in such an overt way? I mean, I guess we do it all the time, really, but something about this seems almost like, I mean, what, what is it like to propose that sort of a study to, you know, your university or ethics boards? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, so one of the, the advantages of using insects is that nobody cares. Uh, <laughs> oh. And so, I mean, I hate to put it that way, but it's true. So, like, there are no ethics this is, boards. I've, I've talked with... You're not the first insect pe- person that yeah. I've that I've talked with, and it's not the what? first time this question's brought up. And every insect person has like, <laughs> actually, no one cares yeah, what so, we do. God. So there, there are no ethics boards for insects, of course. Yeah. Like, so we have I. So I'm actually the, at my own university. I'm the chair of the IACUC, which stands for the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee, which regulates all vertebrate research. Right. So birds, mammals, fish. And people care about those things. And there's different rules for things. And there are federal regulations and guidelines. So they just don't exist for insects. So from a that kind of perspective, like a guideline or a, a mandate, I, we don't have to worry about it. Now, like a broader ethical question that one might ask is, should we care about them? Um, I pro- You probably stepped on a cockroach or you stepped on sm- swatting a mosquito before. Did you think twice about it? Did, I'm not the right person to ask. Yeah, I don't know, but <laughs> did you? No, a dirty I, hippie. Well, no, I, did, but did you? I mean, maybe you did, but did when? Have you? I mean, I did, but not for that long. Yeah, so that's yeah. right. So I think that's what. <laughs> so I'm not telling anyone what to think or not think, but that's sort of just the prevailing way people think about it. So that's right? those are the metrics you use. Like, did you care? Nope. Okay. <laughs> well, and, which could you do this with birds? Where do ethics? I, but when you go back, where do ethics come from? Did you care? Yeah, I guess so. Right, and so there are no there are no inherent ethics. It's a human construct, of right. course, right? right? So any ethical thing that we come up with is, com- is totally Something that made we, up, we right? Make up, right? Exactly. Which is as good as anything else. Exactly. Right. I totally agree with that. And so uh, this has nothing to do with the insects. We're kind of off track now. But I think it's a really important question when we ask ourselves about ethics and morality is we made it all up. Hmm. So if we made it up and we want to <laughs> hold ourselves to it, fine. If we don't agree with it, then what do we do and how do we change it? And so I think these are just really broad 
questions that are probably beyond the scope of this, but I, I do think that's an important question. It's like, it really just, in the end is, do we care? Right. I mean, that's all ethics and morality. And then, I, and then sometimes studying things, you end up, you end up carrying, uh, what is it, Maslow's monkeys, where, where they didn't, like, people at the time didn't understand that, like, oh, you might be mistreating uh, uh, primates or whatever. And actually, the studies that they were doing revealed how much they were actually feeling, and then ethics came along from those studies. Yeah, I think that's um, where they all, that's so, where they all so, come So science yeah. kind of, quote-unquote, progressed, or whatever that means, or, or, or increased empathy yeah. for the study subjects themselves that that your average person not studying primates would have never had you know the slightest inclination i i just want to jump into i I just have to ask like i i when i when i listen to you talk about your research and you know you are looking into the past it seems pretty clear to me that today with you know atmospheric you know things changing we may very well see reason to actually see what things can be intentionally um adapted into our you know physiology if we can create larger lungs through some sort of an artificial whatever whatever it may be so i mean i I went to an exhibit in in barcelona a few years ago at the museum of contemporary art and they had a whole cyborg exhibit on like you know they had demonstrations of babies with gills and with elongated heads to i mean are you are you thinking at all in that way like (laughs) No, like <laughs> John. Yeah, okay. I, have a, I, have a, I have a question for yeah. you. First off, John, if you can't give me gills, I don't know why I'm yes. even talking. To no, you. I know. I mean, it's <laughs> second. I, yeah, it's a lot. We're second, really a broad agreement. Uh, sure. we, we, we're, we're really, we're really getting around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, this is. Uh, let me ask you. Uh, the, uh, just bare minimum like I sometimes wish I was a little more motivated can you hook me into some things and just like scoot me around with a remote a, a little bit yeah like, I could, I, I, hey I can kick you in the ass if that helps. <laughs> I mean I want you put those things in my spine or whatever and then what I do I go to the gym you I, I put some sort of you, uh, I have someone put me in it under anesthetic so I don't gotta experience it or remember it or anything and then you just control me on the treadmill or whatever i get my workout in without having to actually like feel the torture of it and uh a win-win this is a marketable yeah i think it's on there i mean i'll I'll reiterate this is not my field of expertise (laughs) by any stretch imagination but i do think that your question that that you asked is really interesting i think it's a question that we're gonna have to struggle with i mean probably not that exactly but like as this gene editing comes about right this is thing that's happening already what are the ethics of that? Are, do we have the, you know, people would say, do we have the right to change the genes of a, of, a, of a human? Do we have the right to change genes of any animal? And so certainly overall, the decisions we made, it's okay to change the genes of some animals, right? So mouse research, CRISPR-Cas, this is all gene editing that goes on. And these are questions we're gonna have to struggle with as a society. So no, I don't have an answer to that. But if you're asking me, if there were a decision that came down between humans going extinct and not going extinct, would people take any advantage they could? I think the answer would be yes. Of course. Right? So from the, but I mean, are we there? Uh, no, but like, let's just in the theoretical million, thousands, millions of years in the future, would, could we be at that point? Would these be hard decisions to make? I think, I think society would choose yes. Like we don't want to go extinct. Right. We will go extinct sometime. Right. Presumably uh, <laughs> all animals have. So yeah. Back to the ethical question too. I wonder if a hundred years from now, people are going to look back at like, 
what we did to the fruit flies and be like, we were monsters. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, science is try, trying to, in an ideal world, you'd, you'd figure out ways of computer modeling everything and putting in virtual, running like virtual experiments to figure out things eventually. We're just not there yet. Yeah, I, I think it's a balance. I mean, I, I, I don't know if we're not there. I, I, I think that a lot of people, myself included, we do do computer modeling. And that's one aspect of your research, right? So you do a model. But how do you test the model? How do you know if the model's right? Right. So everything is everything we're talking about is a model. Everything you're looking at is a model. So if, if I'm talking to Sophia right now, I have a model of Sophia in my mind. I don't know. What, I can't define Sophia. So like I think models are really important from that aspect. But you know, if you're going to test the model, that's I think you know where where that kind of research comes in. So and it just depends though on the question. It kind of sounded like you're presuming you could define me, and I. Yeah, yeah. you're a little simple. No, I'm just kidding. No, Shane, no, I just, on just the as other an hand. example, just as an example. So, I, I got a pretty good sense of this. Yeah, guy I got a sense. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, so, and, and he knows one, what question you're going to ask next because you're. Oh to- crap! Yeah. Am I that transparent? Yeah, um, yeah. The answer was auction did go. <laughs> I, I um. Uh, one, I had someone on who like literally was trying to study the what climate flies could endure, hmm. which the practical um, study was basically like heat them up until they <laughs> until you can't and and they die. So you're burning. So you making a few Frankenstein uh, <laughs> beetles, you know. It's it, it, if anything, I'm sure the beetles just had a fun day experimenting <laughs> with it. It was I I was one side a little question then we'll maybe stop talking about um cyborg beetles and i'll just continue thinking about it for the next several weeks um <laughs> but uh if you're flying these things around how do you know it's like getting enough energy or when it like needs a break or uh, it, how, yeah it, i was mean was there a way of assessing that that's a good question so um I mean, but to be honest, it's mostly trial and error. But the way you would do the calculation is you would just calculate um, the rate, the, the the wing beat frequency, and then what the metabolic rate required to meet mm-hmm. that wing beat frequency is, and then how much energy demand that takes. So That's we do those kind of calculations there are things. Yeah. So you could calculate it, just like you could calculate what is your caloric intake versus your caloric outtake, and then you'd see my caloric intake exceeds my caloric outtake, which is why I'm fat. And then your caloric intake about meets your caloric outtake, and that's why you're more svelte. So. <laughs> God, science is incredible. That's amazing. Um, the future is going to be crazy. I think I'm on. I'm kind <laughs> of 2020 like, in a few days. I'm kind right? of on so board with what Sophia. Yeah, yeah. We're moving <laughs> into the decade. By people are hearing this. This is a new decade. <laughs> yeah. I was curious about insects. I was actually kind of feeling a little foolish thinking about the respiratory system of insects because I realized I have zero idea of how the and you know what's funny is i once read um like around a 300 page book on um insect vaginas <laughs> i know i know so much there's about um like hidden copulatory you know how interesting sure. insect oh yeah hidden copulatory organs uh, sure and and um <laughs> So we, uh, so, sure, sure, hidden copulatory, <laughs> but but it's just like I'm 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 thinking I'm like what an idiot I <laughs> like, and I haven't even thought like yeah they, you focused on the they, they, they vaginas have, before they're they like have, lungs. I'm a weird guy. And I'm like, do they have lungs? What what is the? Are they just like? 
breathing in a mouth one way and out the other how no it because it doesn't even <laughs> i yeah i wouldn't think so like odd, oddly enough yeah i yeah. kind of felt like i was like geez it didn't even occur to me that yeah. insects breathe yeah like that's how uh that's how little i know about this it, it's um it, t- tell us about what an insect is it lung what's no going on? it's not they don't have lungs at all okay. so yeah let's first talk about how we breathe and then we'll maybe make a comparison great and just i mean not that you we might know how we breathe but we never know we don't know what we don't know so uh <laughs> was, we we there's two that was com- a fun sentence yeah, yeah. we don't yeah, we, we don't, don't know, know what we don't know yeah we i don't think know. so yeah i think that's what i said but i don't know what i said that's a bumper sticker uh so we think about how we breathe there are two components really one is the ventilatory component so that's you breathing in and out so when you breathe in you're breathing in oxygen, mostly. You're breathing, you're breathing in air, and you're, you're increasing on oxygen lungs. I don't want to just imply that only oxygen comes in. All the air comes in, but the air that comes in has more oxygen than what's in your lungs, and that's what you're trying to do. And then when you breathe out, you're expelling more CO2 to get that out of there. And what's really controlling your, the rate you breathe at is not oxygen. It's actually CO2. So as you produce more CO2, your body senses that, and that affects your respiratory rate, unless oxygen gets really low. So there are times where that could happen, you know, disease states, or if you were up the town of Everest, top of Everest, oxygen's a bigger deal. But when you're just sitting here, it's really the amount of CO2 that's being produced, which is controlling your breathing rate, okay? So that the oxygen comes into your lungs, and it, it, dis- it diffuses from your lung into your bloodstream, right? And when it gets in your bloodstream, it's picked up by a molecule called hemoglobin, which you may have heard of. So that's the big carrier. That's why you know your blood is red. It's mostly made up of red blood cells that carry a ton of hemoglobin in it. And then that gets transported from your lungs to the all the cells in your body that actually need that oxygen. So it goes into those capillaries, through the arteries, down to the capillaries. And then the oxygen diffuses across the capillary into the tissue. So that could be your muscles, that could be your brain, that could be your stomach, whatever tissues, all your tissues, not whatever, but all your tissues need oxygen. So capillaries go everywhere and the oxygen's dropped off there. So there's two phases, the gas phase, which is where it's moving in and out of your lungs. And then there's when it's really being transported in the liquid phase, which is the job of your circulatory system and your blood, right? So that's how vertebrates for the most part breathe even if you're a fish you trade those gills for lungs right but it's the same basic concept right you get oxygen across the lung surface into the blood then gets pumped around right okay insects don't do this so insects have something called trachea and trachea are basically hollow tubes just think about a bunch of straws that all branch off and then straw branches again branch again branch again to smaller and smaller and smaller branches but they're all just hollow tubes and they connect to the outside of the insect by something called a spiracle And the spiracle is basically just a hole in the side of the thorax or abdomen of that insect. They have a whole bunch of holes that run along their lateral side on both sides. And so basically, those holes are either open or they're closed. If the spiracle is open, then gas exchange can occur. So the air can go from the outside in, the oxygen getting in, and the CO2 can go out. But it gets all the way to the tissues only in that gas phase it never gets dissolved into a liquid until it gets all the way to the cells themselves. So like we have arteries that branch, you know, into smaller arterioles, into capillaries, they have trachea that branch into smaller trachea that branch into something called tracheoles, but all of those are just hollow tubes. So it goes all the way in the gas phase, all the way to the cells, which is very different than us, where it has to go into our blood and then the blood takes it to wherever it needs to go. And so that's really a big difference between how insects breathe and how we breathe. 
And can they, to me, when you were describing the those little holes on the sides of the insects, they sound like stomata in a plant leaf, They actually. are very much like stomata. Right. So, and stomata respond to the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and during development, for instance, right? So, if plants develop under high CO2 levels, they have fewer stomata. Well, if I rear an insect on a higher oxygen level, it has fewer tracheoles that get down to it. So it's the same so kind of idea. So they have that idea. same effect of Yeah, similar idea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the holes are very much like stomata. They're either open or closed, mm-hmm. unlike us who are ventilating. Now, insects don't rely completely on diffusion. So it used to be thought that all insects can only deliver oxygen via diffusion, which basically just means those tubes are always open and you're just getting the oxygen inside out via diffusive method. And that's true of very small insects. But in larger insects, they can actually compress these trachea. So just like, um, you know, squeezing the trachea, that will force the air further down into the animal or out of the animal. So they actually can compress. So there is some um, convective movement. It's not just diffusion. But again, it's only ever in the air phase. It it doesn't go into the liquid until it actually gets to the cell Mm -hmm. where it gets delivered right. So there's a tracheal that goes to each cell in in an insect that delivers the oxygen in the gas phase right there. So in some ways, it's more efficient, actually, than, than the, our, and, our and respiratory And do toxins system. leave their bodies through that as well? Uh, no, toxins, would, the no, they still to... have an excretory system, okay. right? So they right. that would be more like, you know, the, the rest of the world, the like liver, roots. things like that, that would then, you know, kidney-type organs. So they don't have those, they have analogs to those, but okay. that would go out through the excretory system. So that's independent of the respiratory system. That's incredible. And what? My mind is blown away. Uh, I have a few questions. One of them's pretty good. The other one is... Maybe a hair ridiculous. It's just um, it's start just a flawed. <laughs> yeah, I'll start with a terrible one. It's it's just a flawed question because it's an evolution to assume that like one way is better, or one way is worse, or something is flaw. Like to say like a dog evolved better than a cat yeah, or something like that. Those is are a, like unanswerable questions. Is yeah. a is a flawed way mm. of looking at things. But at the same time, I am kind of like from your point of view someone studying respiration what to use the most impressive respiration mm. system out there and uh i also want least impressive i i have a couple where i'm like what's going like first off pugs pugs terrible respiration mm. system <laughs> but then also like whales and dolphins oh yeah really cool I, uh, it's cool. It seems like such a cool? pain in the ass. Well, that you got to go but all the cool. way. <laughs> but can you, how long can you dive down there? Well, that's pretty great. But isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> I think that's what it's selected it's for. It's impressive. But that's it's, what it's selected. But for, right? it was the constraint of like having to go back into the ocean from being yeah, a that's right. uh, descended from you, from mammals. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. So let, let me. Even though that's not the question you're asking, let's start with the whales and the dolphins. Okay. Okay. So. Because to me, Once, that seems like a bum deal. It is a huge... Think about... So an animal has devol- evolved what we call a bow plan or a body plan, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there's a certain plan that those animals have. So think about mammals, for instance, right? So they already have lungs, right? Yeah. And, and so you can't just all of a sudden say, okay, hey, I need gills now. And then get rid of my lungs and all of a sudden gills evolve, right? Evolution doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Evolution works over time where mutations come in and you get new structures that are evolving um, if there's the machinery or the coding there to still make those types of structures, maybe. But this body plan is, you know, is being controlled by things like Hox genes and all these other things, right? So if you want to go back in the water, you got to deal with what you have, and you have lungs. So you got to figure out a way to use those lungs efficiently to be able to dive for long periods of time. And that's where these mammalian aquatic respiratory systems come from, right? You can't just get rid of my lungs and put gills back on. It yeah. just doesn't work that way, right? So, so while it may seem inefficient to you. 
that's been selected upon for millions and millions of years. And now they are super efficient, which is why Weddell seals can die for, you know, 20 hours or whatever it is, you know, and all these sorts of things where if you went in the water, you might be able to hold your breath for three minutes, you know, and that'd yeah. be impressive for uh, five minutes would be like on the edge of what a human could do. So that's a very, you know, who has an unimpressive respiratory system? Humans. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We can't fly. We can't dive. We can barely climb a mountain. I mean, we have pretty, like, ours are not that great. And it has to do with actually the fact that the air comes in and out the same way. So we have what's called bi directional flow, which means you can't get what's called counter current exchange. So we have fairly tidal respiration is inefficient in terms of getting oxygen, but it's efficient for one thing, which is saving water. So the reason the mammalian... Oh, so I, I didn't, I missed that. What in the water? For saving water. Saving water. Yeah. Saving so water. if you live in the water, you don't have to worry about drying out, right? So if you're a fish, there's plenty of water around. It's not an issue for you. If you come on land, you have to worry about water conservation, right? So we lose like 40% of our water through respiration every day, right? So breathe, just breathing. And so when we breathe in and out, that mechanism actually helps us save water. So as the air comes in, it cools our, our nasal passages. And so air comes into our lungs. And then as it goes back out, it condenses out on those cooler nasal passages, which then allows the water to stay in the animal instead of going out. So that bi-directional respiratory system is great living on land because it helps you save water, but it's not particularly good for taking in oxygen. So, so there are, so like this comes back to oxygen's not the only thing. And so like we're talking about it. So, I mean, not simplistically, but when we think about one thing at a time, you know, that's one way to model it. But of course, all of these things are, affecting it all an animal all at the same time or evolution all at the same time it's like when you're picking your character for a video game it'll like okay this guy has all the strength but he has a low in agility and there's all these trade-offs yeah, it's a trade-off that's right yeah yeah like when my kids were playing Baldur's gate yesterday and they had to pick like what were their tap, top stats that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that we're doing so mm -hmm. yeah so everything's a trade-off and so that was the, the pressure was for water conservation that's a big issue when you live on land because you're constantly losing water and becoming dehydrated and so that's something that has to be dealt with. Go ahead. When you say we lose 40% of our water breathing a day, what is no, it? I'm sorry, 40% of our total water loss, not like 40% of the water in our body. It's like of the water you lose in a day, you think about urinating, you think about sweating. Uh -huh. So like a big portion of that just comes from breathing that you lose every day. Okay, got yeah. it. Hmm. Yeah, I don't want to imply that you have to replace 40% of your body weight in water every day. <laughs> sorry. Like, yeah, yeah, that would be impressive. I think everything yeah. I know about the life yeah, yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I think that actually to your other question about I do think insects have a very efficient respiratory system, and maybe I'm a little bit biased, but um, it, it's a great way to get oxygen into your body, and they're extremely efficient flyers, um, more efficient than many other types of flight. And if we think about insect diversity, uh, they've really won the game, right? I mean, there's 800,000 species of mm -hmm. beetles alone, mm -hmm. for instance. They're, and by biomass, insects win the game. We mammals did not, vertebrates didn't win the game. 4%, we may think it is, I think Because we we're big. But the insects mm -hmm. are way, in terms of biomass and diversity, way better than the vertebrates. So mm -hmm. we're just big. They're small. What about those birds that uh, that also dive and can dive really far down and into the ocean and hold their breath? That seems like pre fairly impressive. Yeah, I mean, I think bir birds are number two for me. Yeah, okay. so I think birds and right. insects. Right. Yeah, and, and birds have evolved 
many different ways to use their respiratory systems. I just think that mammals lose. I guess they're the least interesting. Yeah. So, hmm. so humans just the worst. It's having just, mammals. You look at the, I mean, I, I, like... I, probably humans no more than many other okay. land mammals. But as we are a land mammal, I guess we're in that category. We can make cyborg beetles. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, one plus one for yeah. us. Yeah. The, our our tool our tool use seems to have like yeah. I mean, it, we have it, advantages. We eased up on a lot of like physical. <laughs> It's, uh, pressures. Well, I suppose the see. other answer is it's enough. Yeah. If it weren't enough, we wouldn't be as successful as we were, right? So clearly, respiration wasn't the main selective pressure because there were all these other things had to do with brain size and all these other things that are going on and environmental change independent of respiration. But there are very few humans that live at high elevation, for instance, right? Those populations are really extreme populations. When we talked about earlier, you know, the Andeans and the Himalayans and Ethiopians, um, that's really unusual, right? So most people don't live at those kind of elevations. Or couldn't even. Apart from respiration, what what other things are you? Do you study reproduction? I mean, apart from studying everything in the world, which it seems like you do, <laughs> are, what other phys- physiological sort of? Yeah, so that's uh, so that's sort of in terms of the physiology of insects. I mean, my main focus is definitely on respiration and flight. So that that's okay. sort of, I would say the main focus. Um, but we also study which is related to oxygen and something you kind of alluded to before is the thermal tolerance of insects. Like what really limits how hot an animal can get. And our hypothesis is that actually has to do with oxygen. So as, as insects get warmer, so they're ectotherms just to remind everybody. So we're endotherms, meaning we generate our own heat and we regulate that. And ectotherms body temperature largely is set by its environment. There are behavioral mechanisms to regulate and all these other things, but let's just Take that assumption for now that their environment sets their body temperature. So as that as external temperatures go up, that means that their metabolic rate goes up. And that's normally good for an ectotherm. That's what they want. So that's why you go see turtles basking in the sun. That's why you see alligators in Louisiana that are out on the roadway. These animals are trying to warm up to raise their metabolic rate so that they can go get food or reproduce or whatever they're going to do, right? So and they're this all is, exotherms, these, these guys. They're all ectotherms. That's yeah. right. Yeah, all those things are ectotherms. Mammals and birds are your two groups of endotherms. Evolved independently, again, just to come. I, that's going to be your next question, right? I'm sure is. Or did endotherms evolve only one time? No, they didn't twice. Just to, to jump ahead of you. Yeah, yeah. I only got the one good <laughs> Shane, question. You're <laughs> um, Autopilot. So, so that's good. So they, so their temperature goes up, and they can better compete for resources or whatever the, the ectotherm is trying to do. Um, but as the temperature keeps going up, their metabolic rate keeps going up. And as their metabolic rate goes up, just like as you're exercising, your metabolic rate goes up. What do you need more of? If you're exercising, what do you need more of? Uh, energy, food. Yeah, and where do you get energy from? Food and what have we been talking about? Oxygen. For the last Oxygen. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, that was that was a setup that Freak really us. fell apart there. But I, I hey. was like, <laughs> what I was like, for it was one of those. Was, I was like, oh, is this too easy? Yeah, is no, this no. A trick you need, question. You, you need the glucose and you need the oxygen, right? right. And so usually when you're exercising, <clears throat> what it's not your glucose supply that runs out; it's your oxygen <clears throat> supply that runs out, which is what really limits you. Okay. So as their metabolic, as an, as an ectotherm's metabolic rate goes up, as it gets warmer, it needs more and more and more and more oxygen. And eventually, its ability to deliver oxygen can't meet the demand for that oxygen. So their temperature gets to such a level that their metabolic rate is so high that they can't get enough oxygen in the tissues to be able to deliver it. And that's when the system fails and the animal eventually succumbs to thermal stress, basically. So that's one hypothesis that we have. So that's something we've been studying uh, you know, it has to do with oxygen insects, sort of independent of respiration, but is is obviously related as well too. Mm. But. What is the? Oh, actually, 
So I don't want to forget, I have my guests each week plug a nonprofit of their choice. Did you have one in mind? Yeah, I think we'll go with uh, St. Jude's Hospital. It's one that even since I was a kid that we've been supporting and all the way up now. So uh, definitely if you're out there and uh, they're doing really good work, obviously, with children. So I really would uh, recommend if you got some money to throw uh, to go to St. Jude's Hospital and, and donate. Awesome. Sophia, you're a nonprofit lady. You got something to plug? I am, yeah. Um, support regenerative agroforestry in the Amazon basin by uh, looking at Chaikuni Institute, C-H-A-I-K-U-N-I. Um, it's an amazing intercultural team. We work in the in the Amazon basin, uh, sort of exploring alternatives to slash and burn agriculture. So, yep. Awesome. So, my question was, what is either the most impressive head scratcher or just like the most confusing um, in, in terms of respiratory things that you're the mysteries that you're trying to solve uh, what what are things that make like no sense to you ah that's that's an interesting question uh, like I had a sloth guy on he's like we don't understand why they poop the way that they do and then I and then it turns out sloth poop is a real mystery yeah um yeah, I would say that. For example, <laughs> um, I think if we just think about, and we've kind of sort of alluded to this already, if we think about the um, diversity of respiratory systems that are out there, and there are so many different ones, is why have these different systems been evolved the way they have? And, and it's a question that I gave you kind of a trite answer to, but with so many possibilities. Why do insects have the tracheal system they have? Why do mammals have this bi-directional system they have? And we can point to these sort of hand-waving evolutionary questions. But in the end, none of them are 100% efficient. So there's always room for improvement. And so why hasn't there been this super system that's really sort of evolved out there that they could use? You know, I, th I think that's kind of mm. a question that you kind of alluded to. You know, so And we can answer it has to do with trade-offs or this or that, the other thing. But... Um, you know, they all have things in common and things that are not in common. And so, you know, I just think one thing that, that we think about. Um, and the other thing would be is that, you know, we sort of alluded to auction before and auction allowing things to get bigger. And so what I'm, one of the big mysteries is why are animals the size they are? And I guess that's a, a weird question to ask. But why are elephants the size elephants are? Why are insects the size insects are? Why are humans the size they are? So again, you know, maybe we could talk about why I'm the size human I am, but why are humans generically that size? And it turns out we don't really have any handle on that. Like why are animals the size they are? And so I study sort of what are some of these constraints on how big you could actually be, but what really determines the size and, and why animals are the size they are is really sort of a, a mystery. Because I'm also, if I'm remembering this right, when dinosaurs were around, which were the largest things that ever existed, this was the lowest oxygen levels? When they first evolved. But then oxygen comes back up. So, like, they don't oh. have the giant ones there at that time. But So, again, when oxygen went up, the, si the size also... I, I, w I would hesitate to make that correlation, okay. to be honest. But, well, uh, I'm going to put you, uh, yeah. I'm going to press you um, on this. But yeah, so <laughs> the way I would think about oxygen is it's a limitation, right? So if there's not enough oxygen available, you can only be so big, right? That's the one thing to think about. And so this is where it comes in with the insects. When we're studying, we talked about insects earlier and how diverse they are, but all insects today are small, right? But in the past, we had six-foot-long millipede animals called Arthropora. We had dragonfly-like animals with three-foot wingspans. So insects clearly can be larger, 
but they're not larger now, right? Why are they all small now? That's sort of where a lot of my research started asking that question. Any That's, hypotheses floating around? Yeah, well, this is this is where the oxygen comes in, right? Can and you so, imagine just a three foot long wingspan just like landing in your daiquiri or yeah, whatever? I, yeah, I mean, I think it would be frightening, you know. And ant? I think in some ways, as humans, we're probably lucky that we don't have these things to contend with now. Yeah. Um, but I think to answer your other question, why is it, it comes back to oxygen again, right? And so mm-hmm. that's what we've been studying, and it comes back to the respiratory system you had me describe a little bit earlier with the trachea. And so this is the way to think, this is our current working hypothesis. Um, As insects get bigger, they need proportionately more trachea to deliver the same amount of oxygen. So basically the tracheal system grows faster than the animal grows faster. So if you take that to its logical conclusion, eventually you you would be 100% trachea. The insect, like all it would be is trachea. But obviously that's not possible. It still needs muscles and gut and all these other things. So there's some limit to how many trachea that you can keep having in an animal's body and still have it be a functional animal. And so that would set the limit at which the animal can no longer get any bigger and still be able to deliver su- sufficient oxygen. So now let's talk about the what oxygen would do to that. So remember before you were asking about stomata, and I said if you rear them under more oxygen, they have fewer or smaller trachea, right? Okay, so now there's more oxygen. There's, it needs less trachea for the same size. And now you remove that constraint. So the animal can actually get bigger because it needs fewer trachea for the same sized animal. And so when oxygen goes up in the past, 250, 300 million years ago, what that does is it removes that spatial constraint on the animal. And now these animals can get bigger. And now we can get three foot dragonflies and giant millipedes and all these sorts Mm. of giant insects that we don't have today. So of course, there's other things that play a role like nutrition and, and all these other things we talked about. But if we think about oxygen as a constraint, if here's the oxygen level now, it's 21%. There's a maximum size those insects can be. If I raise it to 30%, those insects can now get that much bigger. But there still have to be other selective pressures that push it towards being that big, right? And that's what I was alluding to. The big question is, why are animals the size they are, right? I mean, these are really interesting questions. They're hard to answer. So, so let's, in a hypothetical situation, fast forward a couple million years and oxygen levels are totally different. We have significantly less oxygen mm-hmm. in the atmosphere. And let's say us humans are still around in some form. How would our bodies maybe look different then? Would we have larger lung capacity? How would that look? Yeah, so you it, let's just say selection just were able to operate. So a lot of people might argue that humans have broken away from normal selective pressures due to all the technology innovations we have. But mm-hmm. let's just say selection just happened on the human population. That's exactly what you'd see. So you'd see that humans with bigger lung capacities would be more able to reproduce, right? And that would push us in that direction of larger lung capacities. We'd probably look a lot like populations that live in the Andes and the Himalayas and the in Ethiopia do now. So you might have increased hemoglobin levels, you might have increased uh, left heart capacity, these sorts of things. And there's a whole bunch of negative trade-offs that come with that. But that's what we would see. We'd see us moving in that direction of what high evolution, high elevation populations look like now. I mean, mm-hmm. who knows? But <laughs> I, I'm speaking very, right. very matter-of-factly. But but that's what I would predict is that you would see in you would see sort of high high elevation morphology start to establish even at sea level. Hmm. And we wouldn't be able to go up there, right? That's the other thing. We would not be able to. Yeah. Go up so, there? like, th- one thing that oxygen really limits, and so we, we there, there's a um, uh, a scientist named Ray Huey and his colleague Peter Ward, at the University of Washington, and they wrote this really interesting paper about um, 
what would mountain climbers be able to do at different times in the geologic past? Mm. And what they did is they looked at what wow. the oxygen levels were, and then what the oxygen they looked level, at what levels, what the oxygen oh, okay. levels yeah. were, and then they modeled like as you went up in elevation. So like the modeling we do looks at sea level, but they modeled how would that change to go up in elevation, and they wrote this paper on like what mountains would people be able to climb or not climb as oxygen levels drop mm. and even at sea level they're low, so they're even lower as you go up in elevation, and people think that. That's actually what's limited dispersal of animals at different times, right? So if animals have to get over a mountain range to get to the next valley, let's say, if oxygen levels are low and they can't get over it, now they're stuck in that same basin. But it was kind of just an interesting, fun paper about how mountain climbers would be wow. affected by geologic time. You so know, if they could go in the Everest. past. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Huh. So hmm. um this is so dumb. But here we go. It's a it's a mystery. It's something that I want to know. I legitimately do want to know this. I once in a while take a stab at working out and taking better care of myself. And I always think like, uh, or, or sometimes in yoga, they're like in through the nose, out through the mouth, and then like different different people give you advice when you're jogging, and then but like when you need oxygen the most, it, it you're like. <gasps> That seems like an inefficient way, but that that's like when you really need it the most, that's how you breathe for yeah. some reason. Yeah. What's that about? Sure. What's the best way to breathe? Is mm. it, is there, is there, do you, has science figured out that, is it, is the in the nose, out the mouth thing a load of crap? What's going on? Well, actually, so it comes back to what we were just talking about, which was water conservation. So in through the nose, out through the mouth conserves more water. So that's one thing to think about is you, that that's an advantage. Um, it also has to do with the temperature regulation of the air that's coming in, whether you go in through the nose or through the mouth. But if you need to move a lot of air quickly, so think about how big your nostrils are versus how big your mouth is. You're going to move a lot more air quickly through your mouth, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're in that gasping, I need air however I can mode, then certainly you're going to be using your mouth to move as much air as you can as quickly as possible. But if you if you think about it otherwise, when you're normally sort of active, you know, you don't have allergies and things like this, your, your sort of normal pattern without even thinking about it is that you're breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth without even really realizing it. You know, so if you think about how you're breathing, you're not, now you're thinking about it. I can see you thinking, <laughs> how am I breathing right now? And so that's sort of, you know, the way to, the way to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know if one's... I, uh, sorry, I forgot to breathe for a moment yeah. there. So yeah, about. I mean, it's, it is, it is, it's the one thing you, you, you have to do without even thinking about it. But... Um, yeah, so I, I don't know if one's necessarily better, but it just depends on what the need of your body is at any given time, right? So, but that's the advantage of that gasping is like, I can move more oxygen more quickly through my mouth than I can through my small nostrils, so. So, we got to start wrapping up here pretty soon because we're heading to stand up science. I got to go and set up the show before doors open. Um, I was wondering, so I don't think we have time. Your background's fascinating. Maybe people can go to your website and read a little more about, about your background because probably more, or if that's more interesting for you to talk about, cool. But probably the most interesting thing would be to tell people about some of the other projects that you're currently working on and have lined up moving forward. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. So I've always got my uh, fingers in a lot of different pots, a lot of different uh, projects here in my own lab or collaborative projects. And so we talked about some already. So like right now, we've been looking at rearing... Um, 
quails under different oxygen levels and looking at their thermal tolerance. So getting back to the vertebrates of my PhD where I worked on alligators. Um, and then we're working on Madagascar hissing cockroaches in the lab and running them under different oxygen levels. That's a long experiment. It's running for three or four years now, actually, because they have a long lifespan as well. Uh, we're doing a lot of the thermal tolerance stuff like I was talking about, but actually I've sort of taken a different track recently and gotten away from oxygen. I've been studying something called Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which is a tick-borne disease. It's actually the most deadly tick-borne disease uh, in the United States. If you're not treated with doxycycline in the first five days, the fatality rate goes up to 80%. So it's really high. Um, and But if you are treated, then the, the fatality rate goes down really quickly. And so um, what is interesting to us here, since I'm based in Arizona, is that in the rest of the country, there is um, a, a tick called uh, the dermacenter ticks that pass this disease around, and that's been known for a long time. But here in Arizona, there is what's called the brown dog tick. And the brown dog tick has never been known to transmit the disease anywhere else but in Arizona until about 10 or 15 years ago. It was first identified. And why that's interesting or uh, a question of interest is why we're really asking the question, why can it only transmit it in Arizona and nowhere else? If it can transmit in other places in the United States, we're in trouble because the brown dog tick is in every state in the United States. So we're studying what is that limitation? Is it um, the climate that's keeping it here? So that's kind of the things we've been studying in the past. Is it a unique type of the tick, like a subpopulation of the tick? Or is it a unique type of the bacteria that actually causes the disease, which is called Rickettsia rickettsii? And just recently in Mexico, south of the border, they've had 4,000 cases in the last four years and a mortality rate of about 30%. So it looks like this vectoring capacity is spreading right now. And so we've really, it's like a totally different tactic from things I've done in the past. And that's kind of, you're talking about my background, it's kind of one of my things that I'm known for switching topics and doing different things. Um, and so this has been really interesting, exciting, something I've never worked with before. We work with the CDC and the mobile health clinic at Midwestern University and all these different um, new groups we haven't worked with in the past to answer sort of, you know, questions related to arthropods, ticks, but also human, human disease. So. Very cool. Yeah. Just saving the world. No big deal. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. It's new. It's fun. It's a collaborative team. So I'm the head PI and we got five or six other co-PIs are doing, everyone's doing their own piece. So um, maybe give a plug here. So we got Rachel Chrysler, uh, Kevin Lee, uh, Mike Qu Quinlan and Jose Hernandez have all been working on this project together. So. Oh, and the only one listening is the one person the one that you I didn't missed. mention. Yeah. The, 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 <laughs> shout out to Haley Owen. Too. Haley Owen, my former grad student, is now at UVA Med School. Give her shout out. Yeah. Uh, well, well, thanks. Alec Oliva, my current student. Thanks, Sophia, going? for yeah. being a wonderful co-host. I still have a thousand more questions. So do I. <laughs> this conversation will continue after we, we're finished recording, I'm sure. And thank you, John Vandenbrooks, for joining me. Oh, and thank you for being gracious hosts. Both yeah, you were, uh, this was absolutely fascinating. Went a little long today because uh, had a zillion questions. A zillion more we didn't even get to. So this is a terrific episode. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you next week next week on the here we are podcast fort worth zoo part three some behind the scenes action three of four episodes there joined by special co-host sophia rockland who's joining me on the head talks tour which i mentioned at the top of the show check out shanemoss.com to keep up with that and i'll be heading uh, west after i after she flies out of austin i'll be heading west on stand-up science 
how I get to California and then heading up the coast, putting together a lot of those dates now and then have a bunch of head talks dates together for May, some regular stand up around the Midwest in April. So, um, so yeah, uh, check out all the things. That would be terrific. And check out Libro.fm, the only audiobook company that allows you to download the books through your local independent bookstore. And they split half of the proceeds with your local independent bookstore. A fantastic way to um, uh, to support um, support local independent bookstores, which I think add quite a bit to communities and um, books they're great and you don't always have time um, uh, to sit down and read them and even if you do it's sometimes nice to read them in the old vehicle like I do so go to libro.fm and you can put in offer code here we are to get three months for the price of one that first month fee that goes right to me that's a good way of supporting the here we are podcast in the hopes that you guys will stick around past the three months. You'll like it so much that you'll stick around. And um, yeah, so it's a sweet deal for everybody, including yourself, because it's an awesome company and an awesome service. So check that out. And those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Network.